Hi, everybody. I'm Tony Ganser, the afternoon host for 90.3 WCPN Ideastream, and I'm the moderator for most of our Happy Dog Takes on the World discussions. I wanted to jump in here before this podcast of our recent event on Kashmir to explain a few things. We knew this event would be an emotional one and a complicated one. Any time an issue touches on the livelihoods, histories, and well-being of millions of people, emotions will run high. And oftentimes the people who feel that their voices are not being heard can feel desperate to shout their perspective so they can't be ignored. We understand that. As a journalist, I don't run from difficult conversations. I try to tread with humility to respect the many things I don't know. But I also ask questions that will help me and my audience better understand our world. I explain that to our audience, that this event on Kashmir on a Tuesday night in a pub would not and could not be a full litigation of the history of this region and the struggles, the losses, the hardships of millions. Our goal is to impart expertise from our panel and engage our audience. Some audience members shouted during our event and tried to have a debate with our panel, and I did my best to facilitate an exchange, to let their voices be heard, but also not to let micro-moments dominate the greater experience. Conversations can be difficult, but they also require us to respect each other enough to listen and to share. And as you listen to this podcast, I hope you'll keep these things in mind. And perhaps it will help you as you continue the conversation in your own way. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. I am uh, Tony Ganser from 90.3 WCPN. I'd like to uh, start, uh, even before introducing our panelists, by recognizing what an emotional issue this is and an important issue that this is for so many people. This event, though, is not going to be a complete litigation of the history of Kashmir, and that's very important. There is no way we can cover all of the complications of this region, all of the interests, all of the very serious issues. We're going to cover some of those issues here, but if you're looking for a full accounting of what's happened in Kashmir over the decades, we cannot accomplish that to any sort of satisfaction. We're going to do our best to give an overview of this very important region and all of the people who are affected by it. Uh, but if you're looking for a, a total, complete history of Kashmir, I'm sorry, you will be disappointed. But we're going to do our best, okay? So with that, I would like our panelists to uh, introduce themselves and say a few words before we start. Hi, I'm Ananya Dasgupta. I teach modern South Asian history uh, in the history department at Case Western Reserve University. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming out. Sure, my name is Milena Stereo. I'm a professor of law at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law, and I teach international law, human rights, international criminal law, and it's great to be here. Hi, my name is Nadia Ahmed. I'm an SJD student at Case Western. I'm a lawyer, and um, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, Ananya, maybe we start with you uh, and, and other panelists. Please jump in as you feel uh, necessary. I think it's important for especially a lot of us that don't know much about Kashmir to explain about this region and some of the history um, and, and some of the conflicts since 1947. Okay. So... Uh 
Kashmir is a, is a Himalayan region uh, that is currently, you know, there's Indian-administered Kashmir, this part of Kashmir that is, Pakistan-administered Kashmir, and this part of Kashmir that's Chinese. And uh, this is a conflict that has taken a particular you know, shape right now. But this is a conflict in Kashmir uh, that is uh, uh, that, that, that turned, you know, you know, so basically the conflict is that the Kashmiri people, even before 1947, even before India and Pakistan became independent countries, were uh, rebelling and they had a resistance movement against their Dogra ruler who was a despot. So while British India, in British India you have Indians fighting the British in Kashmir, which was not part of British India but was an independent princely state, you had Kashmiris resisting uh, their ruler, the, the princely ruler. And so, the, so one thing to remember about this conflict is, about, uh, is that uh, Kashmiri aspirations for, uh, you know, for freedom pre-exist India and Pakistan. Mm. But what you see right now is that this, you know, just, just to give you so, so uh, just to give you uh, some context that you may already know is that Kashmir is the most highly militarized, Indian administered Kashmir is the most highly militarized region in the world. That's something. It's not Afghanistan. It's not Iraq. It's Kashmir. So uh, you have about seven, you know, you have about uh, 700,000 armed forces in an area that's as big as Virginia. Hmm. And uh, what has recently happened is that an escalation of militarization in Kashmir, about 30,000 more troops have been sent in. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a curtailment of civil liberties. It's not the first time that this has happened. But this is a very different moment because the constitutional status of Jammu and Kashmir with the Indian Union, that is with the center, has been changed. Which is the whole issue is also a constitutional issue. There is a debate with, uh, you know, so Article 370, which gave special status to Kashmir, and actually, there, it, the, the, in the, the center, the U Indian Union gives special status to other states as well. So it's not just Kashmir. Uh, has been abrogated. And uh, uh, since the abrogation on the night, night of October 4th, uh, uh, sorry, August 4th uh, and August 5th morning, there has been a, a communication choke on uh, Kashmir. And I think Nadia can tell you more about that. It's, uh, you know, cell phone connectivity is zero. There's no internet. Uh, there's, um, it's hard to get through to your family uh, through the landline. But apart from the, in the, the, so the information network is not just about communication. It also means that um, hospitals are not functioning properly because, you know, lab reports are not coming in through the internet and so on and so forth. It's affecting lives in very, very, crucial ways, and the UN has called it a collective punishment for no crime that we can see, uh, which was the immediate pretext 
for altering the special status of Kashmir and for clamping down on it uh, in such an aggressive manner. So and, and, and we'll get more yeah, to that. Yeah. If we can back up just a little bit more about Kashmir as a region, because I think it's really important to define what we're talking about here. Um, Nadia, maybe, is, is Kashmir an ethnic region of its own? Is this more about territory? Can you just describe what we're talking about when we're separating it as its own uh, you know, sovereign okay. territory that okay. we're looking for? So uh, when, uh, should I? Or? Uh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay. You, you can start. I'll okay. <laughs> so uh, when what used to be British India before 1947 became independent, uh, the territory that was directly under British rule got partitioned between two countries. But there were more than 560 small princely states that had nominal autonomy, and they were given the option to join either India and Pakistan. Mm. Kashmir is one of those princely states. That was uh, in some ways unique because there was a Hindu ruler who ruled over a largely Muslim population. And uh, uh, Kashmir initially wanted, so this Hindu ruler initially wanted to stay independent. Didn't want to go with either India or Pakistan, okay? And because of its very strategic position on the top, it, could have its, it would have been spatially contiguous to uh, either of the two countries. So uh, what happens is that in 1947, there are some, uh, after, after the line of control is drawn, the, ba the boundary is drawn, there are some uh, 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 tribesmen from uh, what became Pakistan that come and attack uh, uh, Kashmir. And the Kashmiri ruler at that point said, okay, send a message uh, to New Delhi saying, you send us troops, and in exchange, we will accede to India, okay? But when they acceded to India, there was a promise of a plebiscite that will occur because it was clear that this was just the wishes of the ruler and not the Kashmiri population. So there will be a plebiscite that was, that, that, uh, uh, will occur. It was a promise that was made by uh, uh, the first Prime Minister of India. And there was also, uh, um, uh, 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 there were also negotiations between the Indian state and Kashmir, which lasted over five months and ended in 1949. And that negotiation was written into the Indian Constitution as Article uh, 370, which has now been read down. Uh, so that is the, 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 that is really the, uh, the crisis, whether, it, is this unconstitutional? You know, there are debates about, is this unconstitutional? Or uh, is this constitutional, but it wasn't done in the proper way? But I hope there'll be questions about it. You want to add? Nadia, yeah. So I think when, um, and Ananya has done a great job of painting a picture of Kashmir. I think also when we're discussing Kashmir, it's very important to realize that it is one of, it's a predominantly Muslim majority state. Um, and it has, since before partition, it has been fighting for freedom. The treaty of accession, the instrument of accession, was one of its ways, which is, which is where Article 370 comes from. It was one of the ways where Kashmir retained its autonomy, retained its ability to make decisions for itself by giving some powers to the center, but saying this is 
what we are going to um, decide for ourselves. So it was, an, and when this was being, the tree, when the instrument of accession was coming into being, as Ananya has pointed out, there were promises that a plebiscite in the Muslim majority state would take place. And that plebiscite has still, uh, the referendum, has still not taken place. And even now, this decision that took place overnight, it took place without consulting um, the Kashmiri, the Kashmir government, without consulting um, anybody Which from actually that government. is not constitutional. Which is, in, it's because not. Because it requires the center to consult Yes. the government in Kashmir, but it was under emergency, so exactly. it was unilaterally made. Yeah. Exactly, it was a unilateral decision, and the constitutional crisis also arises that is it even possible to basically erase a state without that state's, um, without even consulting that state. That state is now eight million people, where the ratio of um, civilians to the, the soldiers to civilians is one to eight. Oh. 700,000 oh. million, it's the most densely militarized state in the whole entire world. And extra troops were sent overnight. And as Ananya pointed out, people have been unable, when we're talking about hospitals, you're talking about people not even being able to call the hospital, not even being able to get in an ambulance to reach the hospital. And in between all of this, a decision affecting them, which they did not even know about. Can I also point that out? It's the news trickled into them over a couple of days, they didn't even realize what was happening. This decision has been taken, and this is um, a huge constitutional question has uh, come around surrounding this. If, if I might ask just a, a very basic, maybe a dumb question. When we talk about autonomy for Kashmir, there are three different Kashmirs that we've outlined. There's, there's Chinese Kashmir, Indian Kashmir, Pakistani Kashmir. Now, when you're talking about autonomy, talking about administered right, so is there any unity between Kashmiris in the three regions, or are we only focusing on what's happening in, in India right Indian now? Kashmir, yeah. uh, okay. Indian administered. Yeah. This, this change affects Indian administered Kashmir, and all of these facts and information that I've just mentioned is regarding Indian administered Kashmir. Melina, yeah. So sure, so I, I, I just wanted to talk about the role of international law in this conflict, since I teach international law. Um, so one question we can ask ourselves is, first of all, um, is this an international law issue at all? Because if Kashmir, yeah. if you accept the premise that Ashmi, the Kashmir was a, a part of India, we're talking about the Indian administered yeah. Kashmir, part of India, had special autonomy within India, then whether India can revoke that autonomy or not becomes a domestic constitutional issue for India. Oh. International law doesn't come into play at all, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Well, okay, so so that so that that's that's one issue. Now, if we say that Kashmir was never really properly incorporated into India because there was supposed to be a plebiscite, right, which didn't take place, then you might say, okay, you know, international law does come into play because this region has been disputed since 1947. Now, the other thing that I just wanted to mention, though, is that where international law also does come into play is if there are human rights violations committed that's by right. state forces, and to the extent that there are human rights violations committed by Indian military, police, state forces, then international law does have something to say about it, right? So, you know, and, and that's a whole, that's a, that's a whole separate issue. 
So no. let's, let's get into this issue of why there was a suspension of the autonomy in Kashmir, because there have been some serious accusations thrown against the Kashmiri governing authorities that what they were doing was unconstitutional, so then the Indian government would have to come in and, uh, I guess, reinforce an already militarized location. So can you talk about the suspension and kind of the justifications here? Well, what are the justifications? Uh, so j just to very quickly uh, throw out a couple of very chilling facts, that is the human cost of this conflict that has been dragging on for decades yeah. now is that from uh, 1989 to 2011, there have been 70,000 deaths and 8,000 disappearances. So we are also talking about a human cost, uh, the, the human cost of a crisis, not just a constitutional uh, uh, issue, uh, but the, the, there was actually no immediate pretext for this abrogation. But in India now, you have a, 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 a kind of a, a party called the BJP, which is a sort of a uh, Hindu nationalist uh, party uh, that had the abrogation of Kashmir on its agenda for a long, long time, at least since the 90s, maybe even before that. And uh, so they just, uh, you know, so uh, the, 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 and the, the justification that the Prime Minister and the Home Minister of India gave is that this is that Kashmir having a, a, a special status is positive discrimination mm -hmm. and an appeasement of the minority. And that actually abrogation of Article 370 will give Kashmiris the chance to develop into a modern secular uh, economic, whatever. But as uh, certain economists have pointed out, particularly John Drez, that actually Kashmir having its own constitution, which is part of the guarantee of special status, has meant that in effect, rural poverty in Kashmir is less than anywhere else in India. Kashmir through the, the 50s carried out land reforms, redistributing land without any compensation, which couldn't have been done had it been under the Indian constitution because the right to property is a sort of a fundamental right. So John Drez, who is a sort of a, a, a radical economist, is saying this has actually been good for Kashmiris. It's not just a question of Kashmiri identity, but I mean, it's something to be, there's something to be said for in a largely agrarian country, you have very little rural poverty compared to elsewhere. India's uh, foreign uh, minister spoke with CNBC recently. Here's a direct quote of his justification. The sense of being separate from the rest of India that was taken advantage of to actually create both a separatist political movement as well as to, by the neighbor Pakistan, undertake a very nasty, unrelenting effort at cross-border terrorism. So there's a security argument yeah, here. There is, there's yeah. also an economic yeah. argument. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. want to talk about that, Nadia? Um, I was, what I was going to mention is, as we were talking about the fact that the, um, the human rights violations and, um, uh, that are happening over there, I happened to um, be there in uh, 2016 and I experienced a curfew, which was not, um, not of this magnitude, but I was there um, for six weeks when communication was cut down, blockades were instituted, Imagine a situation where as soon as you are leaving your house, you are asked, 
where you are going by military personnel, you are afraid to get, you, there are no stores are not open. They open for one hour a day. And in that one hour, you are supposed to grab whatever you can and stores are running out of supplies. Um, I was there with my two young children. There was no way to get supplies for them. I, we had to find ways to bring them into the city. This is a form, as mentioned, a collective punishment for Kashmiris. They have done nothing wrong in asking that they be given their right to decide what was promised to them. The reason that it inter I feel like international law plays a role here is because human rights violations taking place in a, such a, such a uh, densely militarized state should be a concern for everyone, should be a concern for every single person that we need to be worried about clamping down on civil liberties. These are eight million people. My husband has not been able to speak to his aunts, his uncles. They haven't heard from them. They have no idea what is happening in their houses. And this is scary. And there's no sign of it ending. This is why international law, this is, why we, this is what we should be focusing on today and discussing this aspect of it with regards to Kashmiri people and what they are going through and what they deserve. That is... Malena, well, yeah. Sure. So Another way, I should have mentioned this in my original remark, but another way in which international law becomes relevant is that there's this l international legal principle called self-determination. So there's this idea that minority groups that constitute what we call a people have the right to self-determination. The right to self-determination means the right to uh, govern yourself, the right to choose how you wish to be governed. Now, the, so, so, so with respect to Kashmir, there are lots of you know, complex questions. So first of all, is there such a thing as the people of Kashmir? What does that mean? Is that just the you know, Muslim majority? And if that's the case, what do we do with you know, the other uh, you know, members of, of, of the Kashmir population that do not identify as ca Kashmiri Muslim? But then second, um, that right to self-determination doesn't automatically translate to secession and independence. That right to self-determination in its internal form really means autonomy for the people. So in, in this case, that would be you know, Article 370. There's also another article call, called Article 35A, which has also been repealed. Right? So that right to internal self-determination, if that is respected by the mother state here, that would be India, then we say that the people doesn't have the right to claim secession. Right. So up until now, actually, from the perspective of international law, India was in a better position because it could say, well, we're letting the Kashmiris, assuming that that's the predominantly Muslim population, we're letting them have the right to internal self-determination. And so because of that, they can claim the right to separate from India. Now, for India, they're in a worse situation from the perspective of international law because now the Kashmir, to the extent that there's a separatist movement, they can say, well, now our rights to internal self-determination are no longer being respected, and so now we can claim the right to separate and secede from India. I guess one of the questions with international law I would have is, how do you determine who has sovereignty over this area? Because both Pakistan and India are claiming the entirety of Kashmir, and you have India saying that this is their territory that they should be able to control. It is a domestic issue. Whereas Pakistan, I've seen uh, arguments that the Muslim majority needs to be protected. And these are all brethren within that region. Well, so however unfair this might sound in international law, we basically respect existing territorial boundaries, which are often 
um, based on these incredibly unfair agreements that in many instances the colonial power signed with the newly emerging states. But there's precedent from the International Court of Justice at The Hague about you know, a territorial dispute between Chad and Libya where the International Court of Justice says, oh, there's this old colonial map that France signed you know, back in like 18 something and we're gonna go by that. So in international law, the existing boundaries are respected no matter how unfair they are. They are. And in this particular context, there is you know, a disputed boundary, right? But, th but there is a boundary. Hmm. Uh, we've heard a lot of hyperbole, uh, depending on what your side is, uh, especially from Imran Khan, the uh, prime minister of Pakistan, saying we have two nuclear powers staring each other down uh, at this line of division between uh, the two Kashmirs. Uh, we see headlines from like the New York Times, India plans big detention camps for migrants, Muslims are afraid. It seems like there is this, this fear mongering which some have accused the Western media of blowing out of proportion. Can you try to help us decode what is really going on here or is this a matter of perspective? It, 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 what is going on in India? Or in what is going on in India or in Pakistan? How are we supposed to read yeah. headlines like this, especially from yeah. our newspapers in the United yeah. States? Yeah. Should we take them at face value, or yeah. is there a nuance here that we really need to take into consideration? That this is a threat to the Muslims. Yeah. Just, just to, uh, I'm just going to backtrack and then answer Tony's question. Uh, so there is a lot of obsession with Kashmir's special status, right? That Kashmir has a special relationship and a certain degree of autonomy. Uh, with the Indian Union. Now we should, it's, it's, it's well for us to keep in mind that Kashmir is not the only Indian state that has special status. Mm -hmm. There is a state in the northeast of India called Nagaland, mm -hmm. which also has special status. They have their own constitution. So laws passed in the center do not extend to um, Nagaland automatically, number one. Number two, uh, what Milena mentioned about Article 35A is the right of domiciles in cert certain states uh, to land and not to have others outside that particular state come and buy land. So the reading down of this particular article of the Constitution also means that people can go and buy land in Kashmir. Again, this is not a provision uh, uh, governing uh, land purchase and transaction that is exclusive to Kashmir. It is there in several other Indian states, including Mizoram, Arunachal Pradesh, Himachal Pradesh. I think what we will have to ask ourselves is why this obsession on Kashmir then? Like, why this government's obsession on Kashmir? Uh, as if these are provisions that only exist for Kashmiris. And I would uh, uh, argue that it is because it is the only Muslim majority uh, state in India and this pretty aggressive right-wing Hindu nationalist government actually want to, thank you, <laughs> uh, actually uh, want to, uh, you know, it's eroding India's secularism. It's not only eroding India's secularism, but also its federal structure by hacking away at, uh, uh, by, by just hitting at this autonomy, which is the basis of uh, uh, Kashmir's federal relationship with the Indian Union. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, but uh, then uh, the questions about, is this hyperbole? You know, I'm an Indian citizen and a Hindu. Everything I read about like 
the state of minority rights, <laughs> it's pretty bad, so. <laughs> Nadia. Yeah. Um, I, I think once again, just focusing on uh, India and Kashmir right now, Muslim rights in the whole of India right now are in a pretty um, dismal state. Um, since 2014, when the current party came into, um, when the current party came into power, um, crimes against Muslims have uh, multiplied. They've grown exponentially. You see mob lynchings, you see murders, you see a lot of atrocities being committed against Muslims. So I think the fear in uh, Kashmir that this is targeting them because this is Muslims, I, I, I think there is a very, very sound basis for that. And again, speaking from my family over there, it's a very real, it's a very real thing. They live with in all parts of India and Indian administered Kashmir was one place where due to its special status, which I also want to add predates partition, predates 1947. So this idea that uh, this uh, article 35A, it didn't just happen because of partition. It was something that happened way before in the late 1920s, this ability of Kashmiris to have their own place there where they can buy their land to define what a residence it, resident is. This has existed for a very long time. It doesn't have anything to do with Pakistan. It doesn't have anything to do with India. It has to do with Kashmir. And once again, they feel under threat and I think they have a very credible basis for feeling that unsafe. So but, when we, idea, yeah. but I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And I would just, just going back to Tony's original question about the media, I, I do think that the you know American slash Western media tends to usually adopt like a standard narrative and tend to kind of like favor one side over the other, not just in Kashmir but in most other conflicts, and tends to present t- tends to per- perhaps present an overly simplistic portrayal of the conflict, right? And I just think that it's important in this particular context to keep in mind that like. You know, on the one hand, you might have uh, a threat of Muslim terrorism, but on the other hand, you might have human rights abuses by Indian state security forces. The threat of Muslim terrorism doesn't justify, you know, the human rights violations, right? So I think there are many different issues at stake, and I think it's important to remember, you know, all of them. I, I yes. would like to add one more thing. The reason that we're all relying so much on Western media is because Kashmiri media cannot That's speak. Right. They right. have been silenced. There is no way for them, uh, journalists to get into the city. Right. They can't communicate their stories. Right. They are unable to share what is happening on the ground. So. When we rely on Western media, that's the only narrative that is coming out because Kashmir is silenced. Yeah. There is silence yeah. in Kashmir. And again, that's what we should be worried about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, we, we will have a Q&A period at the end. Yeah, you will, you will, you will have a chance to ask your question. Thank you. Um, just, a, just a quick question about uh, politics. I, I read a piece... Uh, expecting the BJP to lose, that Hindu nationalism would would be ousted uh, from the government because that seems to be an Indian pastime, that whoever's in power is going to get ousted in the next election. Um, but that didn't happen. And, and how much of this Kashmir issue now is related to domestic politics and just trying to maintain power uh, for the BJP. Just any thoughts on that? So I think uh, the way that Kashmiris see it and a lot of Indians see it is 
uh, they, they are really scared for the abrogation of Article 35A, which allows everyone to just go and grab land there, including corporations and wealthy people from uh, rest, the rest of India, is that this, this, uh, uh, this is a move that some believe or some fear uh, it will engineer a demographic shift in Kashmir. So you have like more and more Indians, Hindu Indians, and corporations going there and grabbing land. Uh, and you know, we, in the history of India, really, this kind of demographic engineering has never occurred okay. before. So, uh, uh, and, and yes, I think... You'll, you'll have a chance, thank you. Oh, uh, you're right, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll talk to you about the yeah. Pandit issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah you, uh, uh, the yes, the, uh, yeah, you can, yeah, you, you're free to. Just one, one second, thank you. We're, we're almost done. Thank you. Yes, uh, except that was not engineered by the state, right? So. Any, any final, final thoughts on domestic political issue? And, and then we'll go to the Q&A period. So, Thank you. So, so one domestic issue, like this is you know, tangentially related to your question, but I hope it comes up in the Q&A. There is, I just want everybody to be aware that there is a very, I think you already mentioned this, there is a very important legal constitutional issue within the Indian legal system about the legality of the repealing abrogation of Articles 370 and 35A. It was done by a presidential order. There's a huge question as to whether it can be done that way and to think about our own domestic constitutional context imagine if the president could just say oh I repeal you know the Bill of Rights right I mean it, right. it just shouldn't happen that way so there is a huge question and many people anticipate that there will actually be litigation going all the way up to the um, Indian Supreme Court and then to directly answer your question I do think that this is linked to domestic politics and I think for this is just not in India in many other countries um, if there is a sort of populist nationalist party that, that gains power and wants to preserve that power, it is appealing to its voters, its constituents, who basically see this as a, as a, as a great move. You know, let, let's repeal the Kashmir autonomy. That's a great move if you, if, if you believe in that kind of you know, thought. Yeah. So I, I definitely think that I, I can see from a domestic political perspective why this was done. Seriously, I saw a tweet which said, everyone in India is dreaming about buying land in Kashmir. And I even know some people who complain about the people, the price of Kashmiri apples wanting to buy land in Kashmir. That's the, yeah, that's what's being pushed. You, uh, and, and not in this gender dimension to it, the chief minister of a particular Indian state, UP, said that there is a gender imbalance in our, um, in our state. So how about we get Kashmiri women, now that they are integrated into India, to my state to, to, uh, uh, to sort of uh, balance out the gender ratio. And now we are all going to marry Kashmiri women. I mean, it's, it's just it's bonkers, yes. yeah. So thank you very much to our panel. This, uh, one second, thank you. Again, I, I, I would like to repeat, we're just trying to get an overview of a very emotional issue. We're now going to the Q&A period. We'd like for you to line up here. You'll, you'll each get a chance to ask your question. I'd like to ask everybody not to give a speech we're just trying to pose questions for our panelists to discuss. One second, thank you. So if you have questions, feel free to come this way. We will try to get it to as many as possible.
Hello, uh, good evening. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're having this uh, session. Uh, I'm a Kashmiri Pandit, I'm a Kashmiri Hindu, okay, and my family was kicked out of Kashmir in, on January 19th, 1990, in the middle of the night. All the mosques in the entire Kashmir Valley announced that all Kafirs, all Hindus leave or get killed or get converted. So 400,000 Kashmiri Hindus, the entire population of Hindus, had to leave. And for the last 30 years, they are refugees. And before this Article 30, 37 was revoked, every impediment was made by the local administration from us to get back to our, 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 our homes. Of course, we're very sorry that the people for 30 days are without communication. For God's sake, we are without homes for the last 30 years. International media has not taken care of. The world has ignored us. And let me tell you another thing is I, I could rebut every part of what you're saying because for 30 years I've been, I've been in, involved in this thing, okay? But what is the problem, okay? What, what these things are being solved? I am going to... Please, please, please. So, please. The main problem in Kashmir is right now what what uh, the the Islamists are talking about. The Kashmir is 60% Muslim. Yes. Okay. It's 40% almost 30% is uh, um, Hindu, and the rest is Buddhist and Christians. Okay. It's not 100% Muslim. Right. And the Muslim majority is in a, only 12% of the area of entire state of Jammu Kashmir. 60% of area is Ladakh, which is Buddhist majority. Okay, 35% of area is Jammu, which is Hindu majority. So I understand that Muslims have valid concern, but I'm not going to take too much time. But I Thank just read you. this book by Bashir Assad. Sir, your, your question, please. Okay. I'm sorry. My question is, what do you want to do to defeat the nexus of mosque, mullah, madrasa, and militant? Because, thank you, thank because you, sir. Just, just one, one Tomorrow second. Tomorrow is September. Because Please. now the militants Please. are going, going into the. Just a minute. Thank the, the, the militants are going into the houses. Here is the Hezbollah Mujahideen threatening people not to open shops, so not to go out of the house. What is the solution? Okay, your, your question is about maintaining rights for uh, minorities, minorities in, in, in Kashmir. Kashmir. Thank you yes. very much. Thank we'll you. have the panel address that question. Okay. Thank you. One second. To, okay, yeah. I'm happy to address it. Yes. Uh, uh, so, uh, two things to remember. What he's talking about is an extremely unfortunate uh, uh, turn of events that happened in the beginning of the 1990s, where the Kashmiri Pandit population, a large majority of the Kashmiri Pandit population, were native, not all of them. Thank I still know Kashmiris who live in Srinagar. Let our, let our panel yeah, but not all of them. You. Many, most of them. Go ahead, Ananya. Go ahead. Yeah. So were uh, were uh, you know they they sort of became refugees and they they thought it was not safe to live in Kashmir and they still are living in refugee camps. Many of them under great hardship in New Delhi and in Jammu. Uh, uh, so this this occurred at a particular moment in Kashmir's history, which is in the late 80s, early 90s, when. When militancy started, when when, when militancy 
Yeah, so what I'm trying, but, but we have to remember that militancy is not the only way. Sir, no. please, please let her answer the question. They won't do it. Terrorism. Please, sir. No, let Please. Gentlemen, excuse me, you had an opportunity to ask your question. Thank you very much for that. We'd like our panelists to address it, and then we're going to move on. We have many questions here, okay? Thank you very much for your time. Ananya, so please. In the, long, in the long history of uh, Kashmiri people's aspiration for autonomy, which actually you could say starts in the 1930s, uh, it was a political struggle, and yes, there were specific contexts which led to militancy. I'm not denying that there is no Pakistan-sponsored terrorism. There is, but that, yes, there is, but that doesn't define that doesn't define a struggle that has been ongoing since the 1930s. That has taken a lot of forms. You, 9/11. No, 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 no. Just okay. continue. So, I mean, I would, I would also, I would, I would just say. Excuse me, please. I, I would simply add that recognizing all that has happened, you know, just continuing on your comments, I'm not sure that repealing Article 370 and Article 35A is going to make anything better. Exactly. And I think I it, there is there is something to be said about multi-ethnic states, where I think that the best way to to, to deal with those is, is to ensure the respect of minority rights for everyone, and not to say that now to suppress you know this one threat. And again, not denying that there isn't state-sponsored terrorism coming from Pakistan, but you know. Now, suppressing the rights of all of Kashmiris, what is that going to do? That is not going to save, sa solve, solve anything. I, okay. I would just I like to add, I would just. Can you repeat, minority rights for everyone in all countries of all religions? Yes. Sir, what you're saying? Sir, your I question will come. I please. would like to just add that as um, Milena and Ananya have both pointed out, what happened was a huge tragedy. But to build upon Sir. that tragedy okay, and keep repeating mistakes, the state has a responsibility to pundits for sure, and they should find a solution, and they should guarantee these rights, but as Milena pointed out, repealing Article 370 is not the way to do that. There needs to be a solution, which, as we pointed out, this is a, uh, an issue that predates even partition, and we need to find a way to resolve that, keeping in mind all the parties that are here, but suppressing Kashmiris, all Kashmiris, by the way, collective punishment. So repressing all Kashmiris is not the way to achieve that. Thank you. Next question, ma'am. Okay, I, uh, I am originally Kashmiri, Muslim girl, who was in the last year of medical school when the militancy came on. And in this conflict, we have lost, I could say both sides. We were, first, I wanted to make it clear, we were a very pluralistic society, even now. Yes. I, went to, I went to an all-Catholic school, so did my husband. We lived alongside, Hindus were our neighbors and friends. I remember the day, it was my last year, month in medical school, the day in January, when our neighbors came to our house, saying we're gonna be bidding us goodbye, and saying we're leaving, and we said, no, auntie, don't go, stay. Things will be fine, we are okay. It actually was, there was curfew. Nobody was allowed out of the houses except these people. And we actually thought that the government of India is allowing the exit of Kashmiri Hindus and leaving the Muslims behind. They are going to bomb us and finish us. That's exactly the fear we had. We had no clue this thing. And we all suffered in this conflict in the last 30 years. Not only them, I lost my grandfather who was killed on yes. a, in his house, shot by militants. Yes. We lost him. 
We, my husband was the only son of his parents. His mother would have never let him come to United States. He was picked up by security forces twice. I had to actually go to army camps and tell them we are medical students. I don't know why you are picking my husband every day. He was lucky he was sent home alive because there has been perpetual state violence where there has been people who have been uh, you know, arrested without any trial to any judicial system. People have been disappeared, mass graves yes. with multiple people. Yes. Now, if there was a wrong done that the Hindus exit, I do not think one wrong justifies another wrong. Two wrongs do not make it yes. right. Yes. So yes. We, cannot, for, we cannot be collectively punished there. For two weeks, I couldn't talk to my dad. On that 4th of August, I was on rounds. I called him. He said, you have done a good job. I'll ask you a question. Thank you. You'll be raising your children. Take care. God will take care of this. When I couldn't get hold of my family for two weeks, I had panic attacks. I made my husband, who is here, I said, you book a ticket and go home. Okay. If they're going to die, we have to be with them. So the question to me, to you guys, is how does we, how do we fight this state-sponsored terrorism of India, which has been unleashed in Kashmir? My husband can give you direct information. He just arrived on last Monday from there and tell you, you firsthand what's happening there. So how can we fight it? Thank you for your question. Thank you. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, so, so one way is to have more conversations like this. The other is to stress that there are civil society organizations. Please, gentlemen. We learned from you guys. Oh. Go, go ahead. I hope so. Uh, so so, so how, how can we... Uh, so, so hold India to the UN resolution of 1948? 48. 48? 48. 48. 48, not 49. 48, Any, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, hold India to the which says that you have to, uh, which, which uh, hold India to the 1948 UN resolution, which asks not only for ceasefire between India and Pakistan, but also asks India to de-escalate its military. And I do think that, uh, uh, that, that, that you know, I mean, uh, you know, Mona Pan, who is an anthropologist at the University of Syracuse, has recently written about this, that the situation is so tense and fragile. Okay, do you now expect? How do you expect the uh, Pandit population to go back and resettle and live there? Uh, in uh, you know, uh, and and recreate relations, social relations they had with their Muslim neighbors. So they will have. They will be little enclaves of the state, little settlements of the state. So. That's not a reason for doing nothing. But this kind of a knee-jerk reaction is not the roadmap to resettlement, which has to be thought about very carefully. Right? The next question, please. My a name is Dr. Adityan. I'm a psychiatrist. And with due respect to all the domain experts, there have been myths, half-truths, and inaccuracies peddled. So I'm going to ask three very specific questions. If you can limit yourself to one, three, sir, please. Excuse me. We, three, have, we have a line three of individuals. specific questions. Here. One question, Has please. any of the domain experts read the actual instrument of accession? A. B. Has any of the domain experts read the United Nations Resolution of 1948? And does any one of the domain experts care to know that Article 370 and Article 35A were never part of Indian Constitution. They were never accepted by the Constituent Assembly. They were introduced surreptitiously at later time 
Article 35A by presidential ordinance, and it has been revoked by uh, presidential ordinance. Article 370 was a temporary provision, and it has not been abrogated. That's your it question. has been modified. Thank you, thank you, sir, very much. What, were, were these provisions temporary? So, uh, so the answer to that is these provisions were temporary, but they could be revoked uh, uh, with concurrence, not even consultation, which is a different thing, uh, uh, with the Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir, yeah. which was dissolved in 1947. So essentially it's now, uh, uh, sorry, which was the uh, Constituent Assembly of Jammu and Kashmir revoked 1954. So since, 56 actually. So anyway, since it has been, the Constituent Assembly has been dissolved, no one has the power now to abrogate it. So one line of thinking is this is unconstitutional. Uh, I would also... Sir, thank I would you very also much. like to add that um, the Supreme Court of India in as early as, as recently as 2018 has um, given a judgment regarding this. The High Court of Jammu and Kashmir have also given um, judgments around this discussing the role of Article 370 in the Indian Constitution and um, uh, and its permanent status. So as Ananya has pointed out, when the Constituent Assembly dissolved itself, it became a permanent fixture in Article 370, and court cases as recently as 2018 have cemented that as well. So it's, it's again, one of the arguments, as Ananya pointed out, is that this is an unconstitutional way without consulting Jammu and Kashmir um, the government over there. So Thank that's the constitutional crisis. Thank you. Next okay, question. we talked a lot about freedom of uh, press and militarization. So if you see a microcosm of Kashmir, uh, except for CNN and BBC, everyone knows uh, what happened in London, UK, like during the Independence Day, uh, Indians were attacked in London with bottles, eggs, and uh, everything, missiles basically. And then last Tuesday, over 10,000 men descended in London again to attack Indian. Now the illegal, uh, of course, the merit-based migrants were busy working in their offices. So these 10,000 men who descended, they did not find target, so they attacked the Indian Commission. So is it uh, okay, you know, if London mayor could not provide security to the Indians in UK, should Indian government follow the same example and provide no security? So we need the militarization, right? So who were the people? I, I missed this news. Missed who were well, the except BNN and BBC don't, don't and CNN, yes. everyone knows. So it's all over social no, media. I I'm can sure it clips. is. But I'm saying, who were the people attacking the Indians? Over 10,000 men of mostly Pakistani descent. It's documented all over social media. If you go to the right sources, rather than funded uh, uh, research, you'll know that. question is, sir, should, sir. should Indian government be inefficient like the London mayor and not protect the citizens by militarization? And should there not be a clamp on media sure. which tends to distort all facts and just provide one-sided story? So both militarization and clampdown of media is temporary sure. for the security of people. You've, and you've those playing victim here are point. just making story. You've made your point. Tony, Thank Tony. you very much. Thank you. Next question. Can I, to, yeah. Tony, can I... Tony. Thank you. Tony, Tony can, I, can I just quickly Tony. chime in on this? If I mean, like you, what, I mean, so... What you're, what, you know, there is, so there is something to be said about the tension between protecting human rights and responding to security threats. And those are questions that every state, not every state, but 
questions that many states have faced over time. I would just add from the perspective of human rights law that there are, there are certain human rights protections which are what we call non-derogable, meaning that no state can derogate from them. So when it comes to, for example, things like torture, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrests, those are things that states that are parties to human rights treaties, including India, are not allowed to derogate from right. even in a time of emergency. That's right, because even in, in 1991, India introduced in Kashmir, and uh, indeed it ex exists in other states of India, uh, the uh, AFSPA, which gives basically, I mean, imagine living in a, a state where uh, you can be arrested without warrant, where any uh, armed uh, officer can enter your uh, anybody, any premises, uh, and search it without warrant, where vehicles can be stopped and you can be searched, where if you are a Kashmiri, you have to carry an identity card constantly, but me as an Indian, if I go to Kashmir, I can just hang around and be fine. I mean, uh, that this is just not how civil liberty in the largest democracy in the world, let's not forget that, yeah. State of civil liberties in the largest democracy in the world looks like. I think we should think about that very seriously. Just a quick status update. Again, we're not litigating the entire, entire issue of Kashmir, okay? <laughs> we're doing the best we can, and, and we you. should not berate our panel, thank okay? You. Thank you. Your question, please. Well, I first of all want to thank you very much for bringing this such an important and such a remote issue for the West, but I think I congratulate you. I want to congratulate you for your moral clarity. Being a Hindu, being an Indian national, you spoke with the moral clarity, and I admire that one. That said, you know, I think my question is uh, to, the, to our uh, uh, professor of law. The two things over here, that over the last 50 years, 70,000 people have been killed. Number of women have been raped. When does the national basically law applies to the gross violation and state-sponsored expensive? When is the international law will basically to take hold? We did in Bosnia. What happened in Bosnia, it is the case history. Why can't we bring the Bosnia model right now? And number two, from the international law, the, my specific question is, when United Nations mandated, United Nations mandated that the Kashmiris should have a right to vote, not to go to Pakistan or to join Pakistan, but this at least should have a right to decide okay, what they want to do. And violation of the United Nations law by its a biggest democracy when the international, basically, law will be applied in this situation. And that is my question to you. Thank you. Malena, Thank you. you want to talk about so, that? Yeah. Sure. I, so one of, the big, one of the biggest problems in international law is the lack of enforcement powers, right? So the UN can vote a resolution which calls on India, let's say, or any other state to do X, Y, and Z, but the only organ of the Security Council that can actually forcefully do things is the Security Council. And in the Security Council, as many of you I'm sure know, there has been almost not total, but there's been a lot of paralysis because of the diametrically opposed interests of the US on the one side and then now Russia and China on the other. So in international law, the biggest problem is the UN uh, General Assembly can vote a resolution that Kashmir should have a plebiscite, but if it's not done, absent a Security Council resolution which imposes forceful sanctions on India or orders the use of force against India, right, there's nothing that the international community can really forcefully do against India. And again, what is the role of international law in all of this? If there are human rights violations, then international law, you know, steps in, but there are lots of um, very um, difficult international legal issues when it comes to non-state actors 
that are engaged in acts of terrorism, like anytime they're not, you know, international law really is, is, a is an instrument of interstate conflict resolution, so regulate state behavior. So if there are non-state actors that, that commit acts in violation of international law, there are lots of very, very difficult international law questions that we don't have time to get into right now, um, you know, th that are basically like unanswered as of now. Like what, 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 you know, what role the international community has to, to play in that instance? Sir, 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 she, she gave you an answer. Thank you very much. It's very complicated. Thank you for your question. Next question, please. We are running short on time. I'm so sorry, but next question, please. All right, thank you for the opportunity. So we talked about plebiscite where uh, the uh, election has to be held. I think the uh, condition for plebiscite is demilitarization on both sides, not just Indian side. That's correct. We also have That's to talk correct. about Pakistan yes. and That's China correct. moving out of the yes. place. That okay, is that correct. is not happening. Okay. That's your question. All right. We are talking about Indian occupied Kashmir. Are we talking about Kashmir or Indian occupied Kashmir? Why are we only talking about Indian occupied Kashmir when there is atrocities happening on both the Chinese occupied Kashmir and the Pakistan occupied Kashmir? Why is this only about India? You okay. know, to, to, listen, no, to, to be wait, frank, we only had an hour, okay? And, and we're, we're barely and covering somebody this. Somebody said obsession about Kashmir and uh, Article 370 re revoking and okay. not about um, Mizoram or any other place. The violence happening in Kashmir is humongous compared to the other places. So when, when everything is good, there is no issues. It's Kashmir where terrorists are coming in, and there is no opportunity for any of the other groups to su support them. So that's the reason for doing this. Thank you for your statement. Uh, this is a very complex issue. But why did you deliberately not mention that population of minorities in Pakistan reduced from 10% less than 1%? Population in Kashmir Valley, five districts, reduced from almost 4 to 5 percent to almost 0 percent. That's one thing. Number two, in the past one week, terrorists have killed few Muslim men. They have shot and critically injured one three-year-old daughter of an apple merchant. Reason? Because they opened their shops. All landlines are open. They misled you. All the landlines are open now. And in the past one or two weeks, Muslim terrorists have killed Muslim because they were opening shops, because they were doing businesses. You mentioned about plebiscite. Why did you not mention that plebiscite could not happen because Pakistan did not fulfill the conditions, preconditions of the plebiscite? Plebiscite was optionally given by the Indian Prime Minister. It was not a condition. 520 Britishers, when they left, sure. they did not leave India and Pakistan. 530 nations, princely states. Sure. Okay, my question is, why was it so unbalanced and never talked about conditions of minorities in Pakistan that, occupied Kashmir, reduced from 10% to 1% in Pakistan, reduced from 10% to 1% Kashmir Sir. Valley, why? So Sir. why were you not talking? Why were you not talking about those things? So the, re so the reason we focused on Indian ad uh, administered Kashmir because this is an event that tries to make sense of a current, uh, you know, something that's going on in the world right now. And the communication clampdown, the chokehold on the civil li liberties on of Kashmiri people in Indian administered Kashmir, which is not to say that, uh, 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 that uh, no human rights violation at all happened in Pakistan administered Kashmir. But if you look at the United Nations human rights uh, uh, report from 
2018, which I was looking at yesterday, there are actually three pages on Pakistan-administered Kashmir, and the rest of it was a 49-page report. I'm happy to send it to you if you can send me your email. But this is a uh, this is not an event where in one hour we can talk about the entire Kashmir issue in you know in a very comprehensive way. Uh, so we are we are uh, addressing, trying to make sense of something that's currently happening in Indian administered Kashmir. We've already gone over time. Out of respect for you at the microphone, you can ask a question, sir, but please not a statement. I'll just make a comment and then I'll ask. <laughs> Do you have a? I I. I want to repute some of the statements which were just Really, sir, you can do it I just got back from Kashmir. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Yesterday. I want to thank, I want to so thank all of you for yes. coming. I want to especially thank yes. our panel for trying to, to give us information. Have a good night. <laughs>